Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and explorational workshop with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Erwin Keller, titled Out of the Fire, A Time of Discovery. I'm Erwin Keller. I serve as the uh, spiritual leader of Congregation Ner Shalom, where, where we are sitting today. And I'm also the host of the Sonoma series of the New School at Commonweal. I want to welcome all of you here today, as well as folks watching or listening at home on podcast. Um, we, have, um, we have a big evening planned that's going to involve some conversation, but also it's going to involve moving into to groups, doing some exploration, doing some generous listening, and seeing if instead of talking about, um, uh, talking about the kinds of transformations that we've experienced, um, we can actually experience something tonight while we're here, um, make this an embodied experience tonight. So welcome, thank you for being here. Thank you for your anticipated vulnerability. Um, it, won't be, it won't be too threatening, don't worry. Um, and it'll be beautiful. Um, I want to begin by introducing Rachel Naomi Remen here on my left. Rachel is a clinical professor of family and community medicine at UCSF um, School of Medicine. And she's the founder and director of ISHI, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal. Or formerly at Commonweal, I guess, I should say. Now at uh, Wayne State University in Ohio. She's a pioneer of holistic and integrative medicine. Her curriculum for medical students, which is called the Healer's Art. Do we have any, um, any medical professionals who have gone through the Healer's Art program in the room today? Oh, okay, I'm surprised. Um, the Healer's Art creates a safe environment for medical professionals to engage in a deep personal exploration of the values of service, healing relationship, reverence for life and compassionate care, the values that directed them to careers in medicine before the practice of medicine squeezed those values out of them. <laughs> the healer's art is taught in 90 of America's medical schools and in medical schools in seven countries abroad. A master storyteller and observer of life, Rachel's best-selling books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, have sold more than a million copies and are translated into 23 languages. Um, theologian Richard Clifford, in his book about the wisdom literature of the Bible, says, wisdom picks agents or witnesses in every age. For him, the exemplar in the biblical age was King Solomon. But for us in our age, one clear agent and witness of wisdom is Rachel Naomi Remen, and I'm proud to call her my friend. Welcome, Rachel. I love you, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> so, and now we're done. Thank you for coming. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel and I have already been driving in a car today for hours. Hours. <laughs> hours. We saw this beautiful phenomenon. Yeah. Of birds. It involved flocks of birds over the wetlands on 37. Yeah, doing that. But the sun was. Did you see it? Did you see it? It was amazing. The sun was such that when when their when their backs and tails were to us, they were the same color as the as the stormy sky. So they disappeared. 
And when their breast sides were to us, they were white and reflecting the sun. So it was like a cloud of silver and then disappeared. And then a cloud of silver. So we've already had a magical day. Um, really grateful that you're willing to come and talk to us and be part of our process in Sonoma County. I am grateful you're grateful. <laughs> Rachel, when we were first talking about doing this talk, um, it was right around the time that Jews in synagogue read about the exodus from Egypt. And you immediately um, arrived at how potent that image, that, that story was for you in thinking about sort of what we're going through here. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Before I do that, I'm going to say at least two words because I haven't said anything yet and I have this voice that nobody can hear. So let me just say the thing I have to say um, when I'm talking to more than one person, which is, can you hear me in the back? Can you hear me? Yeah. And then there's another thing I wanted to say. Um, this is a, basically a workshop on symbols and their power. Uh, obviously, it's a workshop on feminine principle as well. And uh, while we're going to be talking here for a little while, I'd like to pass something around. Um, I'd like to pass you a symbol that has been with me ever since I was 15 years old. And I just want you to just pass it to each other. Just look at it, hold it in your hands, and pass it on. And just see what speaks to you from this about your experience. Your experience of 2017. So let's start over there and just pass it to each other and you pass it around and uh, while we talk. Do you want to say anything about now you what were it about means? Say, you were saying. No, do, you to, do you want to say anything about what it means to you? No. Okay. Because what it means to me is irrelevant. Um, it's irrelevant in the room. It's irrelevant in general. Uh, <laughs> What it, what it means to you holding it, what it evokes for you, what comes up for you from some hidden place in you is what's important. Yeah. So you, you were asking about... We were for some reason talking about the exodus from Egypt and you sort of grabbed that and, and it meant something to you with respect to what what we're, we've been going through in this county. Well, this is a story uh, of the Exodus. My grandfather, who was an Orthodox rabbi, told me this story when I was probably about four or five years old. It was very small. He was a wonderful storyteller. But his stories had a, a, a purpose. Uh, he told me stories that he regarded as wisdom stories. Stories that would help you to live, you know, a, um, a meaningful life, really. And so he told me about the story of the Exodus from Egypt and how the Jewish people, when offered their freedom, didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to the Promised Land. Um, they were holding on to whatever they had there in Egypt. 
And often what they were holding on to was difficult or painful. Um, but eventually they were persuaded to step out into the unknown, into the desert. And I had this very clear picture of this, of this long line of, of Jewish people with their goats and their sheep and their spinning wheels and their children, you know, going out into the darkness. And I asked my grandfather, aren't they frightened? Aren't they frightened? Aren't they sad? And he says, I'm sure. They are going to the promised land, and you can never go from where you are to the promised land. You also have, always have to go into the unknown first. And the unknown is very difficult for people in the Shumana, he said. So God tells them that when they go out into the darkness, and they have concerns, where will we live? I mean, who, who's going to feed us? You know, all of these very basic concerns. Um, that God isn't going to do what he has done throughout the Old Testament, which is to send an emissary uh, to lead people into the unknown. He won't send an archangel, you know, or, or one of these folks, but that when we go into the unknown, God himself comes to lead us. And then my grandfather gave me an image of this long line of, of Jewish people fetching and worrying, the wagon wheels are gonna come off, what do we do now, and all of this. And they're moving into this darkness, and at their head is a column of fire. And this is the way to the promised land. There is no other way that we always have to confront the unknown. We always have to deal with uncertainty. We always have to let go of things that were dear to us in order to move to a place that we can't even imagine. And that's, that image has been very helpful for me in my own life. Um, I've not had a very easy life myself. And there have been many times that I have felt um, terrified, really. We were talking about yeah. some of that in the car. Do you yeah. want to? And that it, it, the image of the fact that the unseen is present in this. There is something beyond us that we will recognize when we get there. That has been very important to me personally. You know, it's a, the exodus is a tricky image for us in a certain way because... Um, I think we are experiencing a certain wandering in a wilderness right now. There, but there's also, uh, a, there's also a literalness around it. I mean, this year when we, when we read about the children of Israel fleeing in haste, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't not think about, you know, grabbing the things that I grabbed in 10 minutes and getting out of the house. Um, but the wilderness we're talking about is a, is a different kind of a wilderness. Um, having to do with sort of leaving what we knew, not just leaving our homes, but leaving what leaving we knew. Everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And leaving, you know, other things 
that were opposed to us, beliefs about ourselves, about the predictability of life. I mean, these are homes. These are places of refuge to, to every one of us. And every one of us found that we needed to leave. So what is the task for us, if there is a task for us, in the wilderness? Like, what, do we, what do we do now that we're here? I don't think there's an easy, quick answer to something like that. Uh, for me, it has always been to remember that there is something mysterious in life and that what appears to be sometimes random, uh, what appears to be disastrous, uh, opens a whole new life. And it may be different than the life that you had in mind. Mm -hmm. But um, you live it as a different person, as a person who knows that you could survive. You could come through letting go of everything. We were talking about yeah. your experience when you were young. Oh. Before you answer that, let's swap microphones, because I think they might hear you better with this one. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> really? Is it better? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, you. You were saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about your experience when you were a teenager. Yeah. Um, well, um, my life ended one morning when I was 15. Uh, the life that I had been raised to uh, live... I'm the child of elderly parents who were immigrants. And uh, I had a whole life that I was being groomed to live. Um, and one morning I woke up and I had Crohn's disease, which was an incurable illness. It's led me through nine major surgeries. It's led me to literally the door of death and back again at least twice. Um, and it was over. And there was nothing. There was nothing. I, I couldn't go back to school. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Uh, I weighed um, something like uh, 90 pounds. I weigh 140 as I'm sitting here. And I looked like someone with anorexia. And I was uh, unconscious in the hospital for a year. And um, I remember lying on my couch uh, in my living room. My father was actually at some deep level quite happy because I wasn't going to grow up and I would be his, his little girl for the rest of my life. But my mother had very different ideas. She was a professional woman. She's one of the founders of public health nursing in America. And after I lay there and felt sorry for myself and refused to talk to anybody and became profoundly depressed, um, after about two or three weeks of this, when I first got home, she said to me, uh, get off the couch, we have a place to go. And I, I, I wouldn't do it. And she said, well, where are you going? I, I said, I have no, I, I can't go anywhere. I can't walk, I can't do anything. I have no strength, I can't go anywhere. She said, get up. 
And she put me in the car and she drove me out to Long Island where um, you raced cars and gave me competitive driving lessons. And I raced Porsches until I was 21 years old. Because she wanted me to know that even though I couldn't walk two blocks, I could drive a car at 120 miles an hour in the wind. Now, this was not something I had in mind. (laughs) This wasn't part of the dream. You know, the one where I had the big mansion and the beautiful clothes and the wonderful husband and all of this. None of which happened. Something else happened. And it was a life beyond anything I could have conceived of. And that doesn't mean that this is so. What it means is that this is possible. Possible. Just knowing at a time of loss that this is possible is a big first step. Yeah? You had an experience at that time about meaning. Uh, who was it that visited you? Um, oh, 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 everyone had a, a, a solution, of course. Mostly people didn't understand the problem at all. <laughs> and, you know, they, they all had a formula. Well, I should do this and I should do that. And I shouldn't feel this and I shouldn't feel that. And it made me feel very distanced and hopeless, actually. I mean, all of this advice from people who had no idea what my experience was. And somebody came who was a friend of of one of my uncles, I think he was. And he came while I was still uh, hospitalized. I had woken up from the coma and I was still hospitalized. And he said one thing to me. He said, If you can find meaning in it, you can survive it. And boy, is that the key to a lot of doors, the key to a lot of resilience. Um, Meaning is the deepest form of self-care. And if you can find meaning in anything that happens to you, whatever it is, you can survive it. That was the most useful thing that anyone offered me. Now, this is not the, na- the same thing as saying things happen for a reason. It's oh, not no. that. <laughs> no, no. It's feeling your way in the dark and finding something that you sort of feel around and after maybe a while, maybe years. You discover what that is, and that it was the foundation of your life. This thing in the dark. How long did that take you? I'm still doing it. (laughs) And I'm 80. Because we're still still in a process here um, in this county. And uh, we've all experienced loss. And for some people, it's really real. People lost people. People lost homes. People lost work. Um, But also, we all lost um, 
a sense of security. We all lost a, a, a sort of the, the relationship we had with the nature around our houses changed. Um, you know, the, the trees on our road, you know, that changed too. Uh, my relationship with the road that I lived on, that I live on, changed. Now that I, it's a road, there's only one road down off the mountain, right? And now I see it as an escape route um, instead of just seeing it as a wonderful, isolated road. And, um, and at the same time that we're experiencing sort of so much loss um, and so much change and uncertainty, um, I get a sense we don't talk about it much. And we have hashtag Sonoma County Strong everywhere. There's sort of a, in the same way that like our culture doesn't like people talking about grief. You know, I, I don't know this, but I suspect that um, at least I don't feel comfortable talking about what has changed for me. In part because I didn't lose my house. So by what right do I speak about being in a wilderness now? You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and Erwin Keller. So I guess a couple of questions there for you are just sort of how do we hold being in the wilderness, doing a process of finding, finding meaning in a culture that kind of would like us to just get on with things? Hmm. Well, I don't think there's an answer to that one-size-fits-all. I really don't. Um, You know, um, whatever you experience as loss um, needs to be respected by God. You know? It doesn't, this is not a competitive thing. I lost a house, you lost a pair of shoes. You know, if if your loss of your pair of shoes changes your view of the world, right? Um, It needs to be honored. And it isn't something you get over. It's something you uh, weave into yourself and into your life, and along with the loss that you weave into your life, you weave a lot of other things, like a sense of who you are, and a sense of what matters, and a sense of how to spend your time, and who to be friends with, and things that are very, very useful in living a good life, you know. But you have to experience the loss first, there's no shortcut here. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's very natural to want to compare your loss to someone else's loss, and they're luckier than you are, you're luckier than they are, whatever. This, this doesn't honor the pain of it. And the pain is there for everybody. Everybody. Yeah. I've been, um, somebody, somebody who lives outside of the country sent me a, a link to an article in the Chronicle the other day about the wildflowers. I don't know if people saw that article about the crazy wildflowers on um, the burn scars in the county. 
And um, and it was funny. I I um, I haven't actually seen the wildflowers. I haven't driven someplace where I've seen this spectacular view. So I didn't have a firsthand experience about it of it. But reading about it, I felt very resentful of the flowers. Like I I, I didn't like I didn't. <laughs> Have you ever felt that resentful of flowers? That's a, uh, I guess I guess what I was what I was resentful about, like I found myself thinking, oh, I'm supposed to find this to be a silver lining, or I'm supposed to have a narrative now that's about the beauty of rebirth, and I felt pressured in a certain way by the flowers into a certain narrative that I wasn't ready to embrace yet. They're very pushy, those flowers. <laughs> well, you know, all birth, I mean, women will tell you this, you know, all birth involves labor. What's that? Called? Say more. All birth involves labor. Birth is, a, you know, a painful, painful process. Um... You know, the kind of wildflower stuff um, makes me feel somehow as if my experience is trivialized, you know? <laughs> Look, the flowers are here. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, that was kind of, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of how I experienced it. Yeah. As a person who has worked for a long time with people with cancer, young people who um, often who have plans. Um, what you need to do with loss is to witness it, to honor it, to hold it for yourself or the people. Don't let anybody talk you out of it because there'll be a day when it, you will give birth to something else. And that can't be rushed. It's, it has its own timing. It has its own rightness, and that day comes. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes you're standing in the Safeway, and suddenly something, something comes to you that um, is deeply true that you had never seen before. You know? But there's one thing about loss. It sure wakes you up. It's what? Wakes you up. People who never knew they were asleep wake up. <laughs> and then it makes you kind of fearless. This is the oddest thing. It makes you able to sit with other people who have losses and become a healer. It makes you able to accompany people into dark places and sit with them and breathe together, yeah? Mm. I think for my own purpose, you know, I'm a trained physician and God knows what else, a therapist and all of this. Um, the thing that I bring the most to the people I sit with um, who come to me in difficult times is the depth of my own losses. And the fact that I'm sitting here dressed in decent clothes and I have makeup on my face, despite 
And that's what we offer people, that genuineness, that sense of the power and reality of life and of human beings. Ah, that, I knew I didn't turn it off. I can't turn it off. <laughs> Did you turn it off? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Sure. Yes. Um. I was, uh, it had a clock on it. It did. Yeah. But I'm also timing, timing. This, okay. this bit. Because um, we can talk you to death here. <laughs> we really want to do some experiential stuff. I was yeah. reading a piece of Talmud recently that surprised me a little bit. It's a, there's this parable of a rabbi named uh, Rabbi Yossi. And he, he's walking down the road in Jerusalem and he goes inside a ruin to pray, to do his morning prayers or his midday prayers. And the prophet Elijah, who's kind of a mythical uh, figure, appears and sort of stands guard for him while he's praying. And then when he's done, the prophet Elijah says, you shouldn't pray inside a ruin, says, and, and, and the rabbi said, well, I didn't want to stand on the road because I was afraid I'd be distracted. And the prophet Elijah says, then stand on the road and pray the short version of the prayers. <laughs> so it caught my attention because, I, because, I, I, because I'm sitting with the question of, like, I want to be in the ruin a bit. Like, I want to... I want to witness this. I, have, I feel like I ne still need to sit and think about the week of the fire. I need to go over it in my mind. Um, I'm not ready to walk out of the ruin. Um, on the other hand, you know, the prophet Elijah didn't say, go home. The prophet Elijah said, stand over there on the road. Like, you can stand a few feet away from it and still look at it and see it. Um, and so it really caught my attention around, like, how do we hold the grief, the loss? What is the difference between being inside of it, um, being outside of it? How do we hold both of those, right? Because we're going to be going in, walking in and out of this ruin for some time. Um, but where do we want to land? Um, and does it matter? And does it matter? Sorry. It's a stubborn little phone. <laughs> it's, it's a tenacious friend of yours. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't think loss is an intellectual phenomenon. I don't think it's... Cognition doesn't help you with this at all. Um... It's really coming in touch with something in you that survives. And um, that's something that's very deep and it's very old and it's in every one of your cells. And most people don't get down and dirty enough to experience it. But once you've experienced it, it's a resource you're never as afraid of the dark again. What does getting down and dirty with it look like? Running down a road with a fire behind you is pretty close to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
But once you experience this, that there is something that cannot be extinguished, um, it gives you courage of a very strange sort that um, Roberto Asagioli, the founder of psychosynthesis, said, you know, there is no certainty, there's only adventure. Can you say that again? There is no certainty in life, there is only adventure. And it has, it gives you a confidence in your ability to survive, which allows you to live with a lot of passion. It really does. But all this takes time, and each one of us has our own sense of, I mean, healing takes time. And in a funny way, we're talking about healing now. You know? Um, I'm covered with scars. They remind me that I can heal. And it takes time. And it takes patience, and it takes paying attention. You say in um, My Grandfather's Blessings, you say, how strange to think that great pain may be impermanent. Something in us all seems to want to carve it in granite, as if only this would do full honor to its terrible significance. But even pain is blessed with impermanence. These are kind of um, pieces of a wisdom that allow you to live more fully. You spend your whole life avoiding pain. A lot of people do. They avoid life at the same time, of course. You know, we're all trying to fix things. You know, this is such a masculine principle world that, you know, something happens, we'll fix it. Um, I just gave a talk to 175 women doctors about the feminine principle and the way we look at things through the feminine principle. And, of course, for the last 100 years, um, medicine's a cosmology Uh, The world is broken, and we're here to fix it with our technology and our science and what have you. But the world isn't broken. The world is hidden. You know the the story uh, that's told at the beginning of the new year, the story of the birthday of the world. And it, it starts with a disaster. Let me tell you the story, you know. Um... It starts at the beginning, and it goes like this. In the beginning, there's only the holy darkness, the iron soul, the source of all life. And you know, the Old Testament begins with the darkness and the wind over the waters and all of that. And then, sometime in the history of things, the world of a thousand, thousand things. 
this world that we're living in right now, this, this in here, this world emerges as a ray of wholeness out of the heart of the holy darkness, the source of light. And then, because uh, this is a Jewish story, there's an accident. (laughs) And the vessels containing the wholeness of the world break open. And the wholeness of the world is split into a thousand, 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 infinite number of sparks of wholeness. And they fall into all people all things, all events, all institutions, all countries, where they remain deeply hidden until this very day. Now, according to my grandfather, the whole human race is a response to this accident. We're here because we each have innately the capacity to discern the hidden wholeness in all people all events, all institutions, all countries. And we have the capacity to lift it up and nurture it and strengthen it and make it visible once again. And therefore, to heal the world back into its original wholeness. And the name, and this is a process that involves every human being all the folks who are gone, all the folks alive today, all the folks who are yet to come. And the name of this process is Tikkun Olam. And that translates as service. We're here in service to the hidden wholeness to heal the world back into its original. And what that means is every single one of us is a healer. We were born healers, that's why we've come, because we have the capacity to lift up the hidden wholeness, the hidden world, in all events, all events. But we do that together. That's a very different cosmology. You, you live very differently when you see the world is hidden rather than the world is broken. I used to be very judgmental of people's growing edge. I saw, saw their growing edge as their limitations and, you know, why were they stupid like that <laughs> as a young person, you know? I felt very strongly that people just, they just didn't get it, you know? This is just the growing edge of the world. The place where people don't get it. And my grandfather was a magnificent teacher. He uses uses a a model that I use with the medical students a lot, which is a, a pure discovery model. He would set you up to find the thing that he wanted you to know. And when you found it and you ran to him and said, Grandpa, Grandpa, he'd say, how wonderful, Nishumala. So after he told me the story of the birthday of the world, and I was a very small child, and he died when I was seven, so I must have been about five when he told me it. He used to visit me on Sundays. 
And he'd bring me presents, and they were wonderful things. And one day, just very soon after he told me the story, he came to visit me, and he, he brought a paper cup, a little paper cup. I was thrilled. I was sure there was going to be some magic in it because my grandpa was so magic, right? And he handed it to me, and I looked into it, and it was filled with dirt. Now, I was the only child of elderly parents. I was not allowed to play with dirt, and I reminded him of this. And he laughed, and he took me in the kitchen, and he showed me how to put a little bit of water into the cup. And he said, if you put a little bit of water into the cup every day, something can happen. Now, this didn't make any sense to me at all. I was a New York City child. I didn't know what could happen when you put water on dirt. I mean, this was beyond my experience, right? But I loved my grandfather. And yes, adults were always telling me things that didn't make a whole lot of sense, like cross on the green when the red was so much prettier, you know? (laughs) And I loved him, so I promised him I would do this. And the first week, it was okay. It was a, I was excited. Something was going to happen, but nothing did. And the second week, when he came to visit me, I tried to give the cup back to him, but he wouldn't take it. He said, every day, Nishima. And the third week got really hard. I would forget. And I would remember only after I had been put to bed, and I was afraid of the dark. And I would have to go in the dark to the kitchen to put a little water in the cup. But I didn't miss a single day. And halfway through the third week, there were two little green leaves in the cup that had never been there before. I was astounded. And the next day, they were bigger. And I couldn't wait to see my grandfather. I'm sure he's going to be as surprised as I was. But but he wasn't. And he said to me, Nishumalan, life is everywhere, even in the most hidden and unexpected places. And I was thrilled. And I said, all it needs is water, Grandpa. And he said, no, Nishumalan, all it needs is for you to remember that something can happen. And I think that's a good story for us right now, actually. Something can happen. Wildflowers on the burn scar. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and Erwin Keller. So we're going to do a workshop um, on symbols and symbolic language. Um, And I want to just say a few words about symbols and symbol work. Um, It's very helpful at a time like this, which is why we're doing this. We're offering this as a tool. And let me just say a a few things about symbols themselves. And I have notes because I can go on forever about stuff like this. So (laughs) this sort of keeps me in line. Um, Symbols are the language of the unconscious mind, the realm of mystery. Um, The deeper truth. 
And often it's a truth that's universally shared. Symbolic work is always discovery model. It's always a discovery model. And symbols are basically our first language, our oldest language. And we all speak it. It's the images, the dreams, the world of dreams, the world of the deeper level of knowing, if you want to think of it that way. Most of our deepest sense of meaning lies in the unconscious mind. And the unconscious often acts as a compass. It gives us a sense of inner direction. Um, just a few other words about symbols. You know, how, um, how are they useful to us? Um, well, they often bridge us to the world of essence, of core meaning, um, something that transcends culture and is universal, the archetypes, patterns, um, which can be trusted and are playing out in every one of our lives. Um, they offer us new eyes and a larger perspective. So how does an object become a symbol for us? I sent you an instruction, you know, just um, walk around and pick out something that attracts your attention in response to, to questions. Um, and an object becomes a symbol, not because we get conscious about it, but because it resonates with our unconscious. So we're walking around and we see something like this. And somehow it's like it's outlined in yellow. It, it resonates with us. Um, it resonates with something that is in our unconscious mind that is true, that we are not aware of. And it, the resonance attracts our attention and the object itself evokes and strengthens whatever is there in our unconscious mind. So asking a question, what were our two questions exactly? One was, um, find an object that represents the strength you called upon during the time. A strength, strength you, you called upon. upon. Now, all of us have ideas about what strength we called upon. But the object that we were attracted to, and we were walking around, and we were attracted to that object, it resonated with something in the unconscious which might be very different than the conscious strength we thought we had, much closer to our real strength. Right, and the second question was? Something you discovered in yourself or in others. others. And that can, your cognitive mind discovered all kinds of things, right? or interpreted all kinds of things as discoveries. But your unconscious discovered something more universal and more profound, something that is going to help you 
in moving through this and the rest of your life. And so by calling on this method of of discovery, we can uncover a deeper and more personal meaning in the events of our life. And also a more accurate sense of our own power. What has come forth from us in this difficult time? What is our own power? So we've done a lot of work with people with cancer, and I've done an enormous amount of work with doctors and nurses, helping them get in touch with their calling, their deeper reasons and their deeper directions, using toys like this, using symbols. Um, And I want to just talk about one skill which is required. And we're going to then take our symbols, we're going to get into little groups, and we're going to do an exercise, a symbolic exercise, which involves very little talking. But it also requires us to do something called generous listening. So let me say something about this. My friends who are Buddhists say, you can't just say this to somebody. People can't do this. They have to be, you know, meditators for years in order to do this. Well, it turns out there have been 21,000 medical students who have taken the healer's art in the 27 years since we founded it all over the world. And they all do this. And not just this, but they take it into the practice of medicine because it changes everything. It's called Generous Listening, and the students named it Generous Listening. And what it's about is that when most of us listen, we're actually very busy. Just below the level of our conscious mind, or just at the level of our conscious mind, someone's talking to us, and we're doing things like this. Do I like this person, or don't I like this person? Do I like what this person is saying, or don't I like what this person is saying? Is this person smarter than I am, or not as smart as I am? Do they come from a more privileged background than I do, or not as a privileged background as I do? Do I believe them, or don't I believe them? And all of this self-talk is going on as someone is trying to say something to you that matters. Now, in generous listening, we stop all the self-talk. We literally turn it off. And we're not listening to see if we agree with what someone says or disagree, whether we believe it or not. This is all irrelevant. We're listening for one thing only. What is true for the person who is talking to me in this moment? In this very moment, what's true for them? And we witness it, and we validate it, and we hold a place for it in the world. And what that does is create something that is very, very rare in our culture, which is safe space. 
The quality of that space is the first quality of the Hippocratic Oath, harmlessness. We suspend all judgment and we are simply present. We are there. And I found a poem some time ago by a very surprising person, uh, not a poet that I'm particularly fond of, um, William Butler Yeats, right? Fabulous poem. It's about generous listening and what it offers. What it offers is a place of healing, of safety, where a person can release whatever they are holding within them that they are afraid to risk showing to another person because it's that important. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So let me read that again. This is what we're going to offer one another. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So, what I'm going to propose is that we're going to put you into groups of five. And I'm going to do that in a minute. When everybody has a sense of their group of five, you're going to take your chairs and all your belongings and your objects that you brought with you, and you and your group are going to go to a place in this room. And this is a very big room, so a group can go way over there and way over there, spread out, and then you'll sit in a circle with your group and wait till the exercise So, Rachel, starts. what if we didn't bring an object? Well, if you didn't bring an object... Ask yourself the two questions, right, which are? Um, an object that represents a strength you called upon, you have called upon in this time. And the other, th something that represents something you discovered in yourself or in others Others. that matters to you. Something you discovered in yourself and others that matter to you. And something that you discovered a strength that you discovered. Okay. Look in your purse, look in your pockets, look at your jewelry. You have objects all over you that may answer these questions for you. Okay? And and if you can't find something like that, take a piece of paper, make a little drawing. We have uh, index cards, if you need those, with crayons and okay. pens at the front table. At the front table. So, we are now going to count off one through five. Just, if we were kindergartens, we'd know how to do this really easily, but being intelligent people, we're going to have a problem. I am, okay, are we ready? Let's pay attention now. One, 
Two, out loud. Two. Two. Three. Five. You're one group. Remember who these folks are. One, two, three, four, five. Another group. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Five. One, two. Okay. Would the one and two, of the, those one and who, people who just said one and two, come up here for a moment? <laughs> right? right? We got a plan for you, don't worry. And the rest of you, gather up your people, gather up your chairs, gather up your materials, find a place in the room as quickly as you can. Once everyone is settled in, we'll give you more instructions. And let's all sit down and put your belongings behind your chairs. Put your belongings behind your chairs. Good. Yes, put them not in the middle of the circle. Put your belongings behind your chairs so there's a clear space in the middle of your circle. Okay, and everybody has their objects. If you're watching at home or listening at home, and you would like to participate in the learning of the evening, you know, allow yourself to walk through your home or your office and identify objects that answer the two questions that were answered by the people who are here tonight. Okay. And keep these objects close to you. Allow them to be a source of strengthening to the qualities that are within you that have emerged in response to the events of your life in the, in, the, in, in the past year. And remember also that you can strengthen your inner qualities by selecting objects of your own that reflect to you certain qualities that you feel you need to develop or you do have developed that you want to keep close. And put those objects around you because when you see them, they will strengthen your deepest truth. They resonate with the deepest meaning that you hold within you. Thank you for listening. Blessings. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and Erwin Keller. All right, anybody? Yes. I feel somewhat. I feel somewhat dumbfounded and awestruck by the meaning, the deep meaning that these objects, I didn't come prepared somehow, I didn't know about that, but these objects I'm carrying in my purse, a pen and this water, 
have such deep meaning to me. I had absolutely no idea uh, how rich in meaning they are. So this to me is a door, thank you so much, Rachel, to the richness in my life that I have just absolutely not noticed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Anybody else have a comment? Yeah. I was tremendously moved by hearing each person speak about their objects. It, it was instructive to me. It, you know, I understood what people were saying and they aren't things I would have thought of, but they are things that I resonated with and the, the power of listening to others was just striking to me. I wasn't really surprised by my own thoughts about my own things, but the others I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. And anybody else have a comment or a thought? Anybody? Oh, put it up to your mouth as bad as I am. Okay. I particularly resonated by the passing of the objects and the holding of other people's objects and how something that maybe I would have seen as just a simple thing all of a sudden was imbued with so much meaning that it tapped into my memories and and my experiences of those objects. So it was really um, insightful and revealing about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have a comment? Yes. I noticed that in our group, we had a lot of silence. And my story about our group is that we allowed the other people to see deeply into us in a vulnerable and heart-centered way. Mm -hmm. Anybody on this side of the room? Anybody else have a comment? Yeah, there's somebody. I was struck by the fact that there was synchronicity between this random group of people. Um, two of us brought the same, very similar object, and two others of us also brought a very similar object. And um, that just gives so much more meaning to our experience of those symbols that you talked about being so basic and core. And also that something was passed around. It was um, actually twice, a rose quartz heart. And they were so warm. As they got passed around, they warmed up. I mean, it was like hot by the time I got it. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyone else over here? 
Yeah. Big room. <laughs> I found the, um, the instruction before we started to be incredibly valuable in the, and you described what you were teaching to the doctors about basically really focusing on just listening and setting aside whatever your own internal thoughts might be. And I was really able to get a deep sense of the experience of the others because I didn't have my own agenda rolling in the background. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that piece. Mm -hmm. Really makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anybody? I, I really now appreciate, even more than I thought I was appreciating, the power of uh, getting meaning out of symbolism and that we can cross symbols and still have meanings, but they can also be individual and collective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couple more people. Anybody? Right there. Someone right in that same room. I didn't come prepared for today, and yet I was taken by the fact that you were wearing a dragon fly pin. Two days ago, I was told friends of mine were moving, and they found a place to live in another state unexpectedly and put an offer and bought the house. And the dragonfly presented very significantly in that. It was called Dragonfly Ranch or something. Yesterday, I went to a friend's cabin. They found a magical place. Dragonflies were all over. It was called Dragonfly Cabin. I come here. You're wearing a dragonfly. When I did my vision quest, a dragonfly showed up, a little flash of light caught on its body. So I went with the symbol that presented. And in that was uh, an opening for me that showed serendipity, magic, and it represents home for me. So thank you. It was really a blessing. You know, uh, in American Indian symbology, the dragonfly is the messenger between the worlds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One more person. Anybody? I wish I could stay here another hour. <laughs> Anybody? Um, I just want to say ditto to her story. I also brought. I also brought dragonfly, and uh, talked about following the dragonflies from Marin County to our new home in Sonoma County. Okay, so just to close, and then of course people can stay and talk if they wish, yeah? But some people do need to get back. Um, let's just do a reflection together. Uh, if you have something to write with and something to write on, you can do that, or you can just use your memory, because this is not going to be hard. Okay? 
then just take a moment and just reflect on um, seeing the flyer for the first time. Seeing the flyer for this event, the publicity for the first time, and making the decision you were going to come here. Okay? What had you expected to find here? Just let yourself reflect for a moment. Just remember, what had you expected to find here? What had you hoped to find here, even? What had you expected to find here? What had you hoped to find here? Just reflect. And allow yourself to remember the past two hours, the discussion, you know, learning about generous listening, having the experience of sitting with a small group of people uh, and listening to them generously, um, speaking of your own object, and holding in your hands the objects of other people. And allow yourself to identify one thing that you realize that you're taking home with you. The discussion we've just had should also be considered. What did you discover here that you're taking home with you? Yes, whatever it was. What did you discover that you're taking home with you? Something that you may have brought it with you and you didn't know. Or you may have been told something by someone or heard something by someone that was important. Or you may have remembered something about yourself. Okay. And whatever that is that you found here that you're taking home with you, Turn it into an affirmation. Turn it into a little phrase that goes, I am blotty, blotty, blah, or I can blotty, blotty, blah, or I will blotty, blotty, blah. Personalize whatever it was that you found here. In one of three ways, I either I am bloody bloody blah, I can bloody bloody blah, or I will bloody bloody blah. Something for you to take home with you. about symbols and the use of symbols. When you resonate with a symbol, you're walking through your place and you're asking yourself the question of whatever it is and something leaps out at you and you say, this is it, and you take it home. That object 
resonates with something that is deeply true in you. And it strengthens it. When you see it, when you're connecting to it, it strengthens whatever it is in you, your deep meaning is strengthened by the object in your field of vision. So one of the things you can do if you have a somewhat area of stress, maybe your work, or who knows what it is, is to put these objects near you on purpose. Put these objects near you on purpose. Um, you may already have objects near you on purpose that you don't realize why they're there. You think that this lighthouse that's next to your computer is because Aunt Tilly gave it to you and she might come by and you, it's important she sees it, you know, next to your computer. No, it may be that for you, you are a lighthouse. You hold the light steady in times of darkness. So notice the objects around you. Notice the objects that resonate with the qualities that matter to you. Choose objects that recognize, that resonate with those qualities. Keep them close to you. It's a way of strengthening yourself in the inner world by your choices in the outer world. And you, if you work in something like a clinic as a doctor, this could be a very, very important thing to do. It helps you to remember your purpose and why you're here, not just what you're supposed to do. So thank you all. This has been really a wonderful time. And um, bless you all also. I feel blessed by you. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.